welcome to the uh, Volunteer Firefighter Podcast. I only have one member of my firefighting family tonight. I was going to say two. <laughs> That's true. Well, you kind of do. Not kinda firefighting do. family. Ex- extended <laughs> extended family, family, maybe. Yeah. Got a little, uh, little hint of what's to come. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I have Ash. Hi. <laughs> myself. And um, we have tonight as well uh, a friend uh, that we've dialed in on. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about some news there, Ash. Yeah, so news coming up um, out of Pittsburgh. There was a bridge collapse. Um, so bridge collapses drop city bus into ravine. So just uh, before we hit record tonight, we were chatting about just going over the, the photos of it and like how it didn't appear to be all that large. Uh, but then when you like zoom out and see what this bus looks like to scale, you're like, yeah. oh, this is actually a quite a large ravine. So the story reads here, um, and we can kind of discuss it a bit. Uh, a 50-year-old bridge uh, collapsed in Pittsburgh early Friday, uh, which is today as per the recording, uh, requiring rescuers to rappel down a ravine and form a human chain to reach a few occupants of a municipal bus that plummeted along with the span. Uh, luckily, no deaths were reported. I think they reported about 10 occupants um, in the bus Um that they did have to extricate from from the collapse. Uh, right. It sounds like it was just hours before U.S. President Joe Biden arrived to uh, promote some things that he has going on there. But uh, oh, the conspiracy about the bridge collapse. Then. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Must be Trump supporters trying to time it right. <laughs> yeah, now. Here we go. Yeah, now we're down that rabbit hole. But uh, yeah, it says a large crack showed on the end of the bridge uh, where the segmented bus landed, uh, 150 feet. Uh, 46 meters to our uh, metric counterparts up here, uh, down a ravine, uh, as if it was hit by an earthquake. A car landed upside down in front of the bus, which was operated by the Pittsburgh area's transit agency. Um, I think realistically it goes on just to talk talk about the patients, which uh, again, luckily there there were no fatalities. Uh, there were some pretty heavy injuries, I guess, along the way. But yeah, it looked like the the one photo I saw, <clears throat> it was. Uh... Kind of looking down the, down the road, uh, and you can see the angle of the bridge, and it's quite mm-hmm. steep. Yeah, um, it was very unclear. I, I don't know if uh, there's actually vehicles um, impinged or trapped underneath any parts, but right. there's definitely some vehicles that were still on that very steep right. collapse uh, portion of the bridge, and that's where that bus was. Mm-hmm. And in that one photo, like I said that when you start looking at the scale of it, um, the bus is a huge bus. Right, it's a uh, I guess one of the kind of tandem buses. Yes, and. Um, yeah, it looked quite small on it, mm-hmm. and it was down down a steep angle. So that's where they built that human chain they that mentioned chain. Yep. to pull people up that steep mm-hmm. slope. So pretty yeah. uh, innovative for the people there. And it's funny, you know, like you talk about anytime there's big events or MCIs or things like that, a lot of the initial rescues usually happen by bystanders. For sure, yep. And that's a prime example of exactly what happened there. Yeah, people jumping in to help and yeah. uh, making something happen. Like, and making something out of nothing. Yeah, uh, exactly. They're just using, you know, uh, one another as a chain. Uh, let's do everything we can to get these guys out of a bad, bad way here. So Yeah, it's um, pretty cool to see that uh, mm-hmm. teamwork come up like that all of a sudden. For sure. Now, if that would have went worse, um, yeah, there definitely would have been a lot more of a technical rescue that would have had to be. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. and that's where we started talking about, like, these events could happen anywhere. Like, they For could sure. happen in our community mm-hmm. um, where it turns into a very technical, heavy search and rescue, essentially, For sure. and rescue operation. And when we're talking about 
tons of concrete and heavy equipment or whatever the collapse yep. zone may be, mm-hmm. that's kind of out of our wheelhouse, our scope. For sure. So who do you call for that? You know, yep. and on that topic is, well, in our area, we have the HUSAR team. So the uh, heavy urban search and rescue team based out of the lower mainland for us. That's also called uh, Canada Task Force One. And uh, so we started kind of discussing that and we brought on my friend who is a member of that team, uh, Tom. All right. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Thanks for coming on tonight. Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me. So I just want to do a quick intro here of uh, of Tom. So Tom is a good friend of mine. We uh, started with the ambulance service um, together, um, and then we ended up actually being roommates for a while. And then Tom uh, moved down to the coast and continued his education as a uh, career paramedic and continued from there. So currently Tom is a... Um, critical care paramedic for BCHS Air Ambulance based out of Vancouver. And he's also on the medical team um, for uh, Canada Task Force One, so Vancouver's heavy urban search and rescue team. Tom is also a search uh, team leader and past president with the Coquitlam SAR and a volunteer ground, water, and helicopter longline rescue team in the Vancouver suburbs. Tom is also uh, the president of the Canadian Paramedic Memorial Foundation, uh, which is the organization organization that is essentially building the national monument for Canada's fallen paramedics. <clears throat> Tom also is the Paramedic Association of Canada uh, Chair Awards Committee member for the uh, Benevolent Committee. Uh, thank you, Tom, for coming on and making the time tonight. No, thank you, guys. Thank you for the invite. Awesome. So, Tom, um, just for our other listeners here. So, <clears throat> Tom, of course, we, we started when we were young bucks and single. And now we are all old, old, hairy, gray men <laughs> with with family. So Tom, apart from his vast career of uh, being in uh, rescue and paramedicine, he is also a uh, father of two girls and a uh, husband as well. So Tom, if you just don't mind kind of talking a little about, about you know, how you started and why with um, maybe like the, the Hussar and the Canada Task Force team. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, uh, yeah, as Todd mentioned, I've been a paramedic for a little over, I guess it was 20 years ago that we were roommates, so uh, yeah. it was a, feels like a lifetime ago. It does. But, uh, doesn't mean I, I don't still know the odd Todd joke. I assume those are, are all, all on limit. Uh, we're allowed to make Todd jokes <laughs> on this podcast, right? Probably absolutely. encouraged. Absolutely. It is highly encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. So, once I uh, once I moved down to Vancouver area and, and sort of progressed uh, through the ambulance, uh, became an advanced care paramedic, and uh, uh the opportunity came up to, to join the heavy urban search and rescue team. So I'd already started to be involved in uh, a ground search and rescue team as a volunteer there. So you sort of get some of those, some of those early uh, rescue techniques down uh, and you know, just wanted to take it a little further. And so this opportunity to join, you know, such a unique organization as, as a, as a heavy urban search and rescue team uh, wasn't one I wanted to, to pass up. So I was invited to, to join as one of the, the a member of the medical team, which, you know, is, our primary role is to provide that sort of medical support to the team, but of course, that's a, it's a fully integrated team, and and on something like this, you have to do everything. So there's a ton of great training opportunities and uh, and uh, experience that you get by being involved on something like this. Awesome. So now, just maybe describe to people who aren't super familiar. Like a lot of a lot of our listeners are are abroad, so they very well have similar teams in their countries or provinces and states. Um, but for the people that don't know, what is the Hussar team and the task, Canada Task Force 
team and we're task force or you're part of task force one is there other task force um, what is that team kind of comprised of and the team structure yeah absolutely so i mean most uh, developed nations do all have sort of a similar version of this the, these teams so certainly all across you know north america europe australia uh, yeah, everywhere has has something, and they follow one of two guidelines. They're very very similar. So U.S. uses a FEMA standards of, uh, whereas the rest of the world uses a, in Sarag it's called the uh, International SAR Search and Rescue Advisory Group standard. Very similar stuff. Probably just the difference is they use metrics. Um, but uh, no, from it's it, it we're, we're we're trying to gain that accreditation within. So we've been recognized as an Insurog team, and then the next step is to get actually certified with that. So what a task force is is uh, you know it's task force under um, incident command structure is that 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 group of 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 different assets that all work together. Yeah. So within within a HUSAR team, they all have. Um, capabilities to do heavy heavy rescue and there's a number of specifications to the different classifications from light medium to heavy but essentially they'd be at that, it's that capacity to do technical rescue in a you know heavy environment technical search um medical canine uh, water purification communications hazmat all, all sort of all underneath one hat and, and do so in a self-sufficient manner so the idea is that one of these teams if they are to show up in a disaster zone they're not actually contributing to the disaster by drawing on resources they come capable of taking care of themselves and they're to support the the local agency of authority to, to provide whatever rescue or techniques that they need but to do that on our own so setting up our own camp bringing your own food making your own water you know right down to you know managing your own sewage and then cleaning up and, and leaving together so trying not to actually add, add impact but trying to actually assist these the, you know the agency that's been affected Right. So yeah, so Vancouver being one of the teams in, in Canada, uh, there's uh, six other teams. Um, so there's uh, us as Calgary, Alberta is uh, Task Force Two, Manitoba, Toronto, and then there's newer teams that are in stages of development in Montreal and Halifax. All of these teams are federally supported through uh, Public Safety Canada. They also draw on provincial funding and, uh, you know, in our case, municipal funding as well, sort of in a shared, a shared model. Because as you can imagine, you know, the capabilities to do all of this and the equipment required is not a not a, a cheap undertaking. So it definitely is something that requires a lot of support. But the idea is to have a, a resource when you're finished that can can you know support in the case of a disaster. Right, and specifically like large like large scale disasters. That's when you're it pays off to me be even more self-sufficient. Like, I think I remember when we were new in our careers, when there was that, um, uh, was it the, the tsunami in Thailand? Did you guys deploy to that? No, but there was a large uh, incident where uh, the Canada Task Force 1 actually went to Louisiana following the Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina. Oh, okay. And so that was definitely a large international deployment that the team was involved in. But yeah, by far the majority, and, and, and it's actually the case for the majority of, of uh, urban search and rescue teams, is that they actually mostly respond locally to smaller disasters, but then you want that capacity to scale up to that big disaster when it happens. But you know, certainly on our team, the idea is being that sort of flexible all-hazards team is, is what is the goal, where you have that ability to to deploy a, a small team or even just a small component of your team. So if you know, community needs water, well, if you have this, this ability to produce water and, and, and purify it, well, that might be all that's required. But having that ability to uh, to be flexible and uh, and deploy to, to, to local disasters medium disasters and then you know the, the large multi multinational responses abroad are, are all part of the part of the planet for a heavy team 
It's very cool. <clears throat> so with your with your team kind of uh, build up of, of people, uh, like how, how how big is the team? So yeah, the team is is uh, on full strength. I believe about 120 people. Wow. So within our team, which is different than you know, all, all the different teams have different makeup. But uh, the way our team is, it's, it's heavily supported by the city of Vancouver. So the the bulk of the um, the, the members are employees of the city. So Vancouver Fire, Vancouver Police, and then the city of of uh, Vancouver Parks and um, an engineering department to all have members. Essentially, their full time job is. Is, is out there in the community doing what they do. And then a couple times a, a month, they come and train as part of this uh, integrated team. We also have the paramedics are supplied by uh, BC Emergency Health Services. So that provides the component for the medical team. And then there's a few consultants that, uh, that fill in that really technical professional role. So there's geotechnical, structural engineers, specially trained in structural collapse positions and stuff that are brought on as well to sort of fill in that, uh, that expertise that, that's really required. It really is one of the big strengths that these teams bring is bringing these, these people that are essentially experts in everything that they, you know, in their own field mm-hmm. and then bringing them together and, and creating that sort of integrated team. So whether that's, you know, members of, of Vancouver Technical Rescue, Vancouver Fire's Technical Rescue team, will they come on there and they bring that on there and then they can integrate with the, the, the search specialties from Vancouver Police and, uh, and the other medical component from, from BCEHS, all specially trained to work together in this sort of austere uh, rescue environment. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. so definitely the huge, huge multifaceted teamwork involved with that. With Now, curious, with the medical side of things, with, with you guys, um, do you work under your current um, scope of practice, or do you guys get an expanded scope added with your certain medical directorship? No, I mean it's uh, your, your license is your is your license certainly with NBC. So there's there is that uh, um, you know ultimately that's the, sort of the ceiling on your on your practice. You know it's it's interesting that as the team tries to uh, expand into you start looking at international or even even you know within within the country, you know professionals have there's mobility issues bringing your profession to other provinces so if we were to deploy to alberta you know is your license recognized in in alberta is a physician or engineer able to practice in in, in that uh, in a different jurisdiction so those are the sort of the definitely a challenges that are sort of worked through and they're all made through agreements that, that we're working on to try and improve that right but uh um but no like your your, your license essentially sets that sort of parameters as to what uh what what kind of skill you can provide to, to care of the patients yet Oh, very cool. Yeah. So with um, <clears throat> with kind of uh, how you started and with the, the team structure, um, when you mentioned you guys get together as a team and do like kind of joint training with everybody, what what does that kind of look like with all the agencies working together for your training events? Yeah, so there's sort of a, a you know core onboarding that everyone goes through the structural collapse training training program. So that's a couple a couple weeks sort of intensive program. You know, again, already start that point you know, often mixed with other agencies together. So that is, you know, your key, um, your key training for, you know, working within that structural, structural collapse environment. Um, then the team itself, uh, trains on average, so once a month we train as a whole team. So it's super Wednesday, we call it where everyone gets together and it's all of the different disciplines together. And then most of the disciplines do a training on their own, you know, one or, one or two days a month as well, sort of individual, individual training to sort of work on their own core, um, the core skills, you know, with that, it's, it's not just training, but also just, you know, maintenance of, of cash and equipment. And, and as you can imagine, there's a ton of, a ton of logistics that need to go on there. Um, you know, then once you, once you do that, there is, 
other specialty courses that uh, that members take sort of you know often focus towards their discipline or at least uh, focus towards members who are going to be deployed into that environment you know there's not a lot of point putting a Putting an engineer through a you know a swift water rescue course if that's not the environment they're going to be going into, yeah. but uh, you know all those sort of technical training skills that are outside of your normal job parameters that are requirements for members to in order to, to function on the team they go through that. Uh, and then the other part is is uh, where we've actually you know, incredible experience, probably some of the best experiences in, in training that I've got is the uh, large scale disaster training that that we're fortunate enough to be able to do. So every every few years there's a uh, you know, a large exercise uh, that is just an incredible opportunity to sort of pull it all together and really, you know, utilize all of those skills and stuff that you've trained for on, you know, on a daily basis, but actually do it in a, in a, you know, setting up a camp and running a functional team in a 24-hour operation for a number of days in a row. So we've had some, you know, large exercises out Port Alberni. There was a large uh, tsunami uh, earthquake exercise there a few years ago. Um, you know, just pre-COVID, we were actually fortunate to go to um, Muscatatuck, Indiana, for uh, what was essentially the largest uh, urban rescue uh, scenario ever put on. There was teams from all across the states. There was, uh, uh, I believe, all the teams from Canada sent at least some some members. Came from Australia, even came to to join. So it was a major exercise in this. You know, essentially the city that has been built to be a disaster a disaster training center and it was an incredible incredible training and you know get, putting it all together working with all of your team and uh, you know doing rotations 24 hours a day to sort of simulate rescue environment wow yeah that'd be that'd be an amazing event to go to uh, so yeah. with with like the specific uh, training and, and you mentioned like they built that that big training area for that what do you guys have for training down in your area so we have, uh, you know, obviously all this equipment needs to live within a, a facility. So we actually have two different dedicated facilities. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and uh, one is a warehouse uh, right in, in, in the city of Vancouver grounds. It's where the Vancouver Fire Training Center has a large warehouse there. And then recognizing sort of that need to expand, we've actually moved out to a warehouse out in, in Abbotsford as well. The idea there being that's going to be a receiving center for Vancouver should a major uh, earthquake or something happen that's where the other teams are going to be um, arriving and so we're, we're starting to set that up as being also you know attached to an airport that, that we can deploy internationally at uh, as far as the training goes within that uh, within that Vancouver Fire Training Center they actually have quite a large structural collapse pile so you know it's a it's a designed and engineered rubble pile so there's all kinds of uh, you know it's quite a complex um, um, piece that has you know components of, of different different structures there's voids there's all kinds of places and tunnels and places to get into uh, and with that you can you can simulate you know by adding extra props to it all kinds of different uh, different training environments you know also super valuable training for dogs as it gives them a chance to run around on actual sort of broken concrete and loose rubble and things like that that you're just not able to do in most other environments but uh, yeah it's a it's a great it's a great little facility um, and it's uh, you know very valuable for for us to be able to use it as a as a prop to be able to, to set these scenarios up yeah absolutely that's you know it's funny that's one thing we always talk about on here is <clears throat> is the training and making your training as realistic as possible, right? Like, you know, in, in our setting, the, the small, you know, paid on call or volunteer departments, uh, a lot of departments don't have a large training area. So there's a lot of simulation of mm -hmm. training. 
That's right. And that gets challenging when we're dealing with like live fire and other events. So we always talk about, you know, trying to find some sort of an acquired structure or, or a mutual aid agreement with another community <clears throat> to do this training. So it's very high yield and high value, right? So as, as realistic as possible. So you can get that um, kind of, what is, what's the term that Scott always uses? Um, uh, like, a, not, I was going to say compassion fatigue. <laughs> Stress inoculation. <laughs> stress inoculation. Yeah. yeah. So you can work on your stress inoculation, you know, in that high stress environment, but it's a controlled environment. Meaning yeah, that's, our, that's our absolutely, that, that's key, right? I mean, it, you know, you want to, you want to be able to simulate these events as, as true, true life as possible, but I mean, at the same time, it's training. So, you know, you really can't, you can't take on risk. And I mean, and, and yeah. when we're, we are talking about, you know, it's not called heavy urban search and rescue because it's, it's, it's like we're talking about moving, you know, potentially tons and, you know, breaching through mm-hmm. broken concrete walls and bricks and, you know, there's overhead environment, and overhead hazards. And, uh, you, you know, you, you, you can't just, you know, knock over a building and, and train on it like that because it's, no. you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's inherently unsafe. So, you know, it's one thing to train and, and, and drill as if that's the case, you know, for when you are actually going to, to perform live rescues. But, you know, for a training perspective, it's quite hard to mimic that environment in, you know, and still make it realistic. Right. So I know, um, you know, some things we talk about is like, when does a, a department or an agency reach that decision point, you know, when say, okay, if this is out of our wheelhouse, this is too big of an event for us, when to call for the appropriate help. Um, have you been in any situations or deployments where you guys have been, been tasked on something similar to that? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, uh, that's a great comment, right? So there was a, there was actually an incident this summer uh, in, in Kelowna, a, um, a tower crane was being disassembled from a new high rise construction facility. Uh, unfortunately, that, that crane collapsed on, you know, as it was being disassembled, but it was still at, still at great height. Uh, and so it, it, it came down and um, unfortunately, uh, you know, a number of members of the actual crane team were, uh, were, were killed in the, in the accident. So then the crane itself, part of the crane fell through an adjacent office building. So it was a two or three story, uh, you know, office structure within that, um, you know, the initial rescue was all done by the, you know, the, the Kelowna fire department and, and BCHS. They, 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 you know, they did all the, all the work in the immediate, ask, uh, you know, aftermath of the event and rescued all of the all the victims that were were accessible but then there was this one known missing subject so this this victim it was confirmed to be within the building and knew it was there it was quite a small and confined just a few you know uh, a single room essentially where, where they knew he was but it was inherently an unsafe unsafe structure to, to to be around and to gain access to so quite a complex you know it was quite a complex rescue so you know, at some point in there, a decision was made by by the you know the, the department that's like, you know, this is we're not really sure how to get in here. We we can identify that this is an unsafe structure and this is outside of our normal training. Um, and, and and you know, and the other the other thing is, is this is now a major you know workplace accident. So WorkSafe, the, uh, the the regulator for workers within the province sent major incident investigators there almost immediately so right. you know as you guys are well aware what you do what you do in a rescue i'm sure it's always follow policy procedure and only stuff that you're fully trained and, and certified in right we would only we would never do anything else but i mean it, yeah, it is actually another thing where we're, now we're, we're looking at what was going to be a recovery 
And so if you take that and sort of back off and go, ooh, if we're not, this isn't something we're particularly comfortable or have, have that expertise in, is there other resources that we can call in and, and do? Yeah, and so, so the team was the team was activated on that. Um, it recognized that sort of this was a, an unusual situation. And uh, and and so uh, a small component of the team, I think, uh, you know, a few 20-member 20, 20 team was, was deployed on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, with that, we were able to work with the local agencies, so the you know Kelowna Fire guys that were there for the initial deployment, they were there with us as we went through that that extrication. You know the the WorkSafe uh, inspectors that were there were happy to see this sort of this this teamwork together, but also that that layer of expertise. You know, big part bringing in our engineers and and being able to help. Uh, you know, actually sort of determine what what was safe and what wasn't done. Uh, and and with that sort of that 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 team effort, and then in the end, uh, we we sort of facilitated it was a real a conscious effort on behalf of uh, chief boone our department to ensure that the Kelowna guys were involved in that rescue and so they actually did the recovery themselves once we sort of worked together to actually stabilize the structure and, and gain access to the, to the victim so what is it uh <clears throat> what's the time frame look at like when when somebody calls you what, what's the the kind of response time for you guys to be deployed yeah I mean, that, that's that's obviously the the, the big challenge right it's not like it's a, a group sitting there sitting there ready to go i think it depends yeah. on the on the nature of, of the event and and what we what we want so i mean uh, there's that opportunity to get a, a you know at least an initial team doing a doing a recce event can be can be pretty quick so like, the goal is to be out the door within a few a few hours mm-hmm. you know our, our ultimate our ultimate goal is to be to be sort of a six hour for a team deployment that's a big that's a big challenge um but you know, for these local events, depending on what it is, uh, you know, it could be it could be quite quick. So there was a, there was another you know similar workplace accident uh, collapse of a structure uh, in, in North Vancouver, uh, which we actually work with. Uh, um, we trained cross train with the North Vancouver City guys on lots, on lots of our regular training already. So they were well aware, well aware of the team. But because this is a local thing, I think the first the first couple of people were on site sort of, you know well within the hour, and there was a, you know a, a, the technical equipment and uh, other stuff was there you know not long after so it, it really it's 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 a factor of travel time so you know are we able to get to a helicopter and deploy a small quick team or we might be able to get there quickly um you know obviously packing and loading a for a, for a full-scale deployment could be quite a you know a several hour planning and process right yeah i was just going to ask you so like <clears throat> if it's a, a let's say just a provincial deployment um or even just a local or mainland deployment, um, how does how does that look? Does that like um, small team starts out in vehicles? Do you go by flight if it's out to the interior? What does that look like? And then once you, if you do arrive by flight, what's the arrangement for pickups and transports? Like what, what kind of operational vehicles do you guys use? Yeah, I think that's uh, you know that's a, a flexible. It, it, it's all going to depend on the on the what's what's needed and what's 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 required. Um, you know, obviously we're coming by flight. Flight. There's no vehicles available to us. You know the, the sheer volume and the type of equipment that that's required to, to perform these things. You know, it's very difficult for a local you know a local thing to fly. So you know it is it is going to be trailers and 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 semi trucks and you know that sort of stuff. So we do have a fleet of sort of pickup trucks and, and larger larger trucks that you know tow you know, uh, tow equipment that can actually show up on on site. So it is already loaded. You know largely ready to go out the door but of course there's that sort of final checks and and you know making sure you get the the right gear depending on the task particularly important on a smaller scale event where you don't you know, you know what kind of the issue is and so you need to tailor it specific to that but right but yeah i mean it, it's it's 
to get the heavy equipment there, uh, it's going to be a, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a ground deployment uh, timeline. Right. For, you know, for most of the local stuff, unless it is going to go into an aircraft. Yeah, no, definitely. And obviously you guys would try and fly as, as close to the area as you could. Like, so let's say if, if there is an event in one of our small communities, you guys would most likely initially try and fly out to our local airport and then some through somewhere through the chain of command through the IC structure, we deploy uh, vehicles to pick you guys up most likely. Yeah. I think that depends on the nature of the event. Uh, you know, I should, I should clarify. I'm not in any, in any leadership role or even official spokesman for this team. So I probably yeah. shouldn't comment too much on the details of, uh, of how that would go. But, but that's the idea, right? Is that, right. that, you know, if you can get a, get an aircraft with an initial team, at least can, can provide that Intel back to, the base of operations of what kind of gear we're going to need. Like, you know, this is, you know, the, the, obviously the goal for your departments is that recognition of there's a problem here, you know, yeah. find that kind of information as to what sort of issue is wrong. But then, you know, as far as matching what the gear is that, that is going to help solve that problem, lots of that requires the expertise of the, of the team members themselves. <clears throat> so if we can get an initial team out there, we can then feed that information back to back to the, the logistics specialist to load that special gear. That's the, you know, that's hopefully a time when the rest of the members have assembled and are able to, to sort of come. So yeah, it might be, a, you know, probably most efficient for ground deployment for places like the Okanagan because, you know, it's not going to, for the, for the full equipment, but hopefully an aircraft can come closer, like a helicopter with a, with a um, you know, a team that can, provide that intel back to us yeah right on <clears throat> so the how many uh, uh how long were you guys deployed on that uh, clona event yeah it was just a, it was a several it was just a couple hours so uh you know we we arrived uh in the in the evening uh and, and at that point the decision was made that we were gonna you know actually conduct the rescue right there and it was a i think it was just a five or five hours or so they were on site and, and were able to actually gain access so it was done it was done by midnight the, the night of the actual collapse itself well wow, right on yeah and then so i guess then uh the other kind of large event in our area that's that's recent that we've talked about on a previous podcast is um kind of the, the flooding and landslide situation down the lower mainland that we all went through for a while and that was uh Due to the flooding and landslides, that affected literally the whole province with all the major routes cut down. And you guys um, were called for assistance on that. Yeah, that's right. I was really fortunate to be on uh, on the team that was involved in. Uh, we actually had sort of two two deployments within that, but the primary one we had was was just outside of Agassiz, uh, so a small community um, just on the outskirts of the Fraser Valley, <coughs> where. You know that that night of the the main storm, sort of the official or the first day of the real storm, um, there was a number of landslides. So my understanding is actually it was just you know quite quite confusing, quite a lot of, of um, you know information coming into them. It initially came in as a I believe like a rollover MVA, and, and soon they find out there's there's a series of landslides. There's um, I believe like up to a dozen cars sort of. Uh, That initial rescue phase, the full credit goes to the you know the local volunteers of Agassiz Fire and uh, Ken Harrison Search and Rescue, the ground search and rescue team that worked together with them. I believe they pulled about twelve people out of that. I understand out of the slide, so the the uh, 
the search and rescue team had access from the like the slide itself debris went right into the fraser river so they were able to access by boat to the, the lower end of that and then uh the kent harrison or sorry the agassi fire department you know got in and got a few members that were in vehicles or victims that were trapped in the in in vehicles at some point in there i think that recognition of perhaps that it was an unstable environment and you know the full kudos to the you know the command staff there on they were able to sort of pull back and go okay we've, we've conducted the initial rescue here but this is just an unsafe environment we need to back off and sort of figure out what what to do so as i understand at that point the chief uh, the chief of agassi fire contacted uh you know our chief chief boone um directly uh Basically, because he'd heard about the event in Kelowna, and I think it was uh, was the you know the information on how that work was shared at uh, one of these chiefs conferences, and then was able to bring that back and said, "Well, this this sounds like the you know we need some help, and this sounds like a team that might be able to provide some some assistance to us." So uh, they were redirected to go through the the channels for so for activation for for our team within the province of British Columbia is through Emergency Management BC. So that's the the agency that sort of handles emergencies or disasters for the province and coordinates the response right. so that's the official um, processes to, to activate us through that yeah. um, and once that was done we, were, we started sending members that night although it was quickly identified that uh, we, you know, we really couldn't properly evaluate the situation until daylight and we're able to sort of at that time determine that probably most of the the people who were trapped were in a safe enough environment that weathering out that night it was the best course of action to try and get access the next day yeah, and that event, like, you know, I can only imagine, you know, knowing those roads so well from working and commuting down there for so long, you know, like, it's a, it's a very interesting lay of the land, like, steep terrain, wet terrain, mm-hmm. you know, this was torrential downpour weather that we were in, and, you know, such an unstable environment, like you said, like, part of the slide went into the river, so now you've got SAR and boats and, like, all these agencies involved, that initial rescue would have been extremely challenging, um, and then for your deployment, how were you guys able to, to access that like with, with the weather? Yeah, so I mean, the weather was definitely, definitely a challenge that and that would have you know, delayed things. It was close to delaying things, you know, more. So essentially, once that decision just to wait till, till daylight was made, a few more members uh, from our team sort of arrived early in that day. And what was really sort of determined at that point that there was, like I said, that series of probably three or four landslides in a, in a row that, that that blocked it. One of the landslides that was, you know, the main one was at uh, Ruby Creek, and our, our geotechnical engineer was able to get up into a helicopter and take a look at it. And I was actually quite concerned because it looked like some of the some of the debris had had moved, but was hung up on the on it. So the his estimation was there was up to twice as much debris that was essentially unknown whether it was stable or not at that time. So that became quite a dangerous zone to be anywhere near because we, we didn't know at any time the slide could, could you know, essentially double in size by, by moving the rest of that material that was trapped, still strapped up on the mountain. Yeah. Um, it was also determined there was about 150 cars that were on, you know, between, trapped between these, these slide debris. We could see a number of vehicles that had gone, you know, been, been swept up by, at least two of them had uh, vehicles that, had, that they had taken out with that. Um, so, you know, we could see about six to ten cars that were, were involved. Obviously, some of those had already been rescued the day before, but it was a little unclear. And, you know, because these cars were just stuck overnight, you know, the information coming back from from uh, from callers were there were there were some medical problems. There was a number of people that had, you know, medication problems. You know, cars ran out of gas because it's just the end of the road, right? It's right before you fill up in hope. So if you didn't have that, if you were waiting to fill up, 
uh, you, you know, you, you may have a quarter tank of gas and then it ran out overnight trying to keep yourself warm. Yeah. So definitely people were cold. Uh, we knew that uh, at least two people that actually had been caught up in the landslide were able to self-rescue themselves. So their vehicle was swept away, but they were able to get out themselves and they were, they were with other people, but everyone's cold and wet from, from being out in this like, you know, horrible weather overnight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, seeing that event, and there was a number of people that were trapped overnight. We I, we actually had some close friends that were um, not stuck on that stretch, but they were stranded in hope for mm-hmm. that. And um, they they even mentioned that the community was huge, how they helped. Like people bringing food, pizzas, shelters. Um, the one family um, brought in numerous other families to their house, and it was like a flop house. That's where my friends and, fa- and kids were. They got invited to that person's house with all these other families and just, yeah, sleep on the floor, sleep on the couches, extra beds. They fed everybody. They did laundry. Like, they just really took in all the people who were stranded. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was, you know, I got to give a ton of credit to the to local communities. And, you know, Agassi, you know, recognized this and, uh, you know, really, I think, reached out on to support support these these people as well that were, were trapped. So, you know, as well support our team. Yeah, and then so with that, um, I know there's a, a lot of media uh, footage of you guys or some of your your team members actually flying in and, and rescuing those people that were trapped. Yeah, so that's that's absolutely so. They found this, you know, the estimate from this was that was somewhere between two and three hundred people in these in these vehicles. Uh, we had, uh, uh, you know, there's fifty children, there's twenty five dogs, cats. You know, recognize that because of the complex nature where the one landslide was so unstable or so, you know, had to be properly assessed in order to gain access. And then the, the series of slides on the other, other side, we knew that it was going to take a long time to gain access to that by, um, by, by road clearing. You know, there were some other sections of, of roads that were, were trapped that, uh, you know, the information coming back was they were going to be able to get access within a, within a few hours. So, you know, whereas this one really didn't look like it was going to be promising to be able to get access anytime soon. So with that in mind, um, uh, somehow, I don't know exactly the mechanism, but uh, 442 Rescue Squadron out of uh, CFB Comox was was engaged. So part of their mandate, uh, you know, in addition to their sort of primary mandate of, of air and marine search and rescue is to provide humanitarian assistance in times of disaster. And so they actually scrambled three aircraft out of there, so three cormorant uh, helicopters, which are, I think they're technically classified as mediums, but they are very large helicopters, you know, flying school buses, really carrying 25 people or so. So they yeah. recognize that if we're going to move this volume of people, we're not going to do that six people at a time in an A-star. We're going to need some, <laughs> some, something of, of substance and size. So they were, they were brought in uh, and uh, you know, really sort of performed the, the air rescue side of that. So what actually, you know, what we, what we actually did was that they, they came and met us, met us at, uh, at Agassiz where we were going to set up our reception center where all these people that were going to be brought out. They flew a dozen or so of our, of our members out to the site um, and where we were able to sort of go through that, search all the vehicles, talk to people, try and try and find these, you know, anyone that was sick or injured, prioritize, uh, prioritize who was going to be, be extricated and then work with the, you know, the, the Canadian forces to, to facilitate the actual movement of these, of these people and dogs and, and such outside of the, um, of the, the affected area. So I think it worked. Uh, it worked really well. You know, there's definitely some some learning points and some snags along the way. You know, the, at that first, it was actually just such a 
tight area that such a large helicopter is quite challenging for them to even find a place to place to land. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we got in there, we were able to sort of quickly start searching through the searching through the vehicles. So you know, we were we were going through there trying to trying to triage. But it's, a, it's a, an interesting perspective, you know, having gone to other you know, MCIs and been involved in that normally all of these people are presented to you at once and it's quite an overwhelming experience when you're trying to triage when you have you know dozens of, of, of people all together. This one was interesting because these were all in cars that were spread up over you know two or three kilometers worth of affected area and you know you're only accessing one car at a time and so to even find who these people were that had medical conditions was actually quite a challenge and really you know the helicopter was ready to go so it was just a question of getting the next you know, the next 20 people or so in a lift uh, out, out towards the uh, towards the helicopter and safely loaded onto it. Yeah, you know, you, you nailed it there with, with like triaging and <clears throat> MCI experience. So anybody who has ever been involved in an MCI in triaging or some sort of team lead role will understand how overwhelming that can be. Because like you said, you are absolutely inundated with this massive group of people all of a sudden. And like the MCIs I've been on, if you're first in with an ambulance or second in with an ambulance, it's just getting pilfered. Like, like it's get, getting gutted. It's so overwhelming. Um, so that would have been extremely challenging. Like you said, with you land a chopper, you only imagine everybody's chomping at the bit to get the heck out of there, and you're trying to coordinate and triage people accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, you know, it was it was, it was good. We, we developed a system, you know, where essentially we're going through there just identifying how many people were in a vehicle, you know, if anyone was had any any issues like i said a number of people were quite cold for the cars particularly that, that ran out of run out of gas halfway through the night um you know making sure that there was anyone that really needed to go with a, a priority that we were able to get them on but but mostly it was just a lining them up but also trying to keep them from standing out in the rain too long you yeah. didn't want everybody out because it was absolutely horrible conditions and which ultimately you know became one of our one of our weaknesses as a team we started after after being out there for six or eight hours a number of our team members started to get really cold because you know even though we we knew what we were going into we brought you know proper proper gear to be dressed for the environment you're just standing in that in that rain and that that cold and and you know and there was winds at times it became quite a challenging challenging to stay warm and uh, and you know and, and you know obviously we take care of ourselves as well yeah, and that's something that, you know, it's always key for anybody in emergency services to remember that, you know, like, you were there to provide help as best we can, but we have to be very aware of ourselves so we don't become a victim as well and need rescuing. So Yeah, this isn't key. our emergency. This is <laughs> the emergency. That's right, yeah. Let's not contribute to the emergency. <laughs> yeah. Like, negatively contribute, right? Yeah. Yeah, so essentially, you know, we uh, we, we, we were able to get, actually get access. There was a largely empty uh, container container transport truck so that that was open so we were able to actually use that as a bit of a storage for some of our equipment but also a little place that we were able to, to get out of the rain a little bit and uh, you know the, the one of the police members on our team you know we were we, part of what we were doing is we were making sure we secured all the all the vehicles we, we, we made sure nobody was out there and then we also um uh recorded the license plates to be able to, to, to transport that back and we found out there was a, a rental car which we decided we could uh, we could probably commandeer as a bit of a warming center for us so we actually <laughs> used it to help shuttle shuttle people that were further away that you know needed some um assistance to be able to get closer to the helicopter but also to, as a place to, to let a few of our members warm up in a you know in a, in a rotating fashion nice yeah very cool so you mentioned that was kind of uh like the first deployment out of that situation, you went. You guys were involved in another one. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, at the end of at the end of that, uh, you know, we we essentially um, were able to to bring a 
you know, I, I don't actually know the final numbers. It was close to 300 people. There's probably 50 children, 25 dogs, uh, uh, a cat, and and two exotic cows. Um, <laughs> you know, it was amazing the sort of stuff we found in there. There was uh, two cows that were, were you know in a trailer that uh, was a bit of a challenge. But uh, once we were able to actually you know finish finish that that rescue, we wrapped up. Um, you know, the next day we went and sort of finished final finished up some details, and as we were transitioning back, that's when the uh, the situation really got worse in uh, in um, Abbotsford, and so uh, the actual technical rescues and all of the all of the real work that uh, you know happened in the emergency with the emergency work that happened in Abbotsford was done by by other other departments, so lots of uh, ground search and rescue teams, uh, you know, did both like helicopter rescue, water rescue, you know, all the local fire departments that they conducted most of the rescue stuff, but we were tasked into that. And what was recognized was, you know, there was just this, this, this challenge of this massive affected area and how do we actually, you know, what do we do with it? And so what the team actually was involved in there over, um, I believe six or seven days was helping facilitate the rapid damage assessment so what that entailed was essentially facilitating uh, building inspectors and others to go in there and survey as the waters recede, survey the buildings and structures to determine you know their their structural stability, you know if it was fit to be able to be rehab, you know for for habitation. Just very quickly from the exterior, just a quick quick look to try and determine what kind of structures were stable, and uh, and and what kind of damage was completed. So our role on the team working together with the uh, the local Abbotsford Fire Department was to sort of facilitate the delivery of that. So we provided that the expertise of, of rescue if it was required, uh, of hazmat, uh, you know, because these floodwaters were significantly contaminated with all kinds of, you know, pesticides and, and coliforms and, you know, animal waste, animal carcasses, everything that you find on a farm you know, became sort of floating. So, uh, you know, the grow operations, drug labs, all kinds of stuff was, was uncovered through all this. So all of that stuff that was floating in the water, we wanted to make sure that that was, was you know, a safe environment. And part of that was the uh, the local atmosphere fire department providing that decontamination of, of these people we, we came out. And so with that, we were able to, you know, assist them, report back, track, map, uh, you know, again, using our, our, professional experts, the geotechnical engineers able to get you know, satellite imagery that helps help to actually determine how the floodwaters are moving, you know, updated regularly, uh, you know, provide a resource to the, to the community to help them um, facilitate the, you know, the, the, the initial sort of phase of, of after action, after disaster, uh, just, just really trying to size up what the actual disaster looked like and what was going to happen, you know, to help, help them make their plans for the next part. Yeah, so so once things slow, well, it didn't really slow down for a while, but then you guys definitely turned into more kind of logistics too to support everybody. Hey, yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the things that the team uh, kind of recognizes that there is there's a role for for us is is you know these these afterwards you know one of the things is going to be incident management that when these large disasters happen, lots of towns just don't have that capacity to sort of maintain running an EOC for a significant period of time. And so providing some of that logistical support, uh, you know, and if that involves technical support out in the field, as in this case where you know, we were able to provide sort of that, uh, that backup rescue rescue support to, to the building inspectors that are out doing it, that's the sort of stuff that, you know, the other, other roles that part of an all-hazard team can provide. 
Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I know one takeaway I had uh, watching a lot of it on on the news <clears throat> was seeing all these other um, agencies from other municipalities uh, in that area working together and supporting in that massive incident command structure. You know, you're seeing uh, police cars from Vancouver and abroad and, and other fire departments and everybody working together to keep operations going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously I wasn't involved in the early stages and our, our team wasn't, uh, you know, I know my, uh, my ground search and rescue team sent some members out there and, and, and yeah, it was, it's exactly that. It was sort of, you know, how, how kind of, we have all these resources that are available. We're fortunate that there are these teams that are, are available to come and support when they need it. And, uh, you know, we were able to, to, to you know, the province, you know, the community was able to pull, pull those specialty uh, resources together and, you know, try and at least try and minimize the, the impacts of that and try and, you know, minimize loss of life and damage to property as best as possible. Awesome. Well, it sounds like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy, crazy couple of years. And then this past year with, well, those deployments too for you guys, that sounds uh, like a pretty, pretty interesting time. Um, is there, looking back at it, and or even just not even at those events, is there any um, big takeaways that, that, you saw or you felt that um, you gained knowledge or experience from or you could pass information on to other um, departments or groups that would you know help recognize when to call yeah it's a that's a great question todd i mean it's uh the sort of thing where you know early information and and you know early that even that early call like there's nothing there's nothing wrong with when you're not sure about something you know putting that putting that information out to put the request into EMBC to at least have that sort of put the team on to standby or at least to 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 start the process of recognizing it right or you know you, you don't know necessarily we're talking about stuff that often is outside of you know the the even the imaginations of some of these some of these departments and they come like well we weren't expecting this right this is something that is outside of the normal the normal wheelhouse. You know, obviously, all of these departments have, you know, strong, talented individuals, very creative or good problem solvers, right? You, you know, you don't, you don't like to call necessarily for help if you don't need to. But, you know, there's nothing wrong in that early stage of putting that request out there. And then you can even find out what kind of resources might be available for, to you. Because um, that often is the case. You don't even know. If it's outside of your, your, your scope of knowledge, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what kind of assistance could even be available. So, you know, I think if you have those sort of overwhelming um, situations, putting that request in, uh, you know, we can always get canceled. We can always get uh, stood down. We don't even need to activate, but it's a it's a sort of thing that is it's it's available. The resource it's available, and and you know, use it when you think you need it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great great segue there. Like we talk about that a lot in our areas, being <clears throat> being smaller resources and whatnot with in our reach, is that early recognition for help because it takes time to mobilize. So that's why we in our small areas we have these mutual aid agreements. Uh, on the small scale and calling early for that help is key because you know the worst thing you can do is not call think you got it and then it starts blowing up and now mm -hmm. you're delayed even more for those resources yeah absolutely like you know obviously we are not around the corner it's not the sort of team that's going to be coming to you in a you know there's going to be a number of hours from the time the event happens to the time that they're they're available but you know getting that ball rolling ultimately gets the, gets the, you know, the team on site sooner, the sooner that they start activating. Right. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for taking the time with us tonight to, uh, 
chat about your experiences and your vast knowledge with uh, you know your your in-depth career you've had since we uh, since we first met. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've done a lot in your career and, and really progressed um, in the emergency services and everything for public safety. So it's uh, it's been a great time to have you on. Um, you're a facet of information. You have tons of information. Uh, yeah, we definitely look forward to hearing from you again. We'd like to have you on again for uh, some other discussions. No, that sounds great. I mean, I've been pretty fortunate in being able to be involved in these things. Like, I'm I'm just a member of this team. Like, I'm not in any way, a, you know, a, a leader of the team. I, I'm not uh, not an official spokesman for it. So, uh, but but you know, it's an incredible experience to be able to do, and I'm glad to to come out here and get to have the opportunity to share the story with you guys. Well, awesome. Well, thanks again, Tom. Really appreciate you taking your time. We will uh, say goodbye to you for now, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Great. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, bud. Well, awesome. That was uh, that was really, really great to have Tom on there tonight. You know, it's just a, a wealth of information. Uh, For he's sure. He's got a very vast career through this. And, um, you know, like looking back, like just in the emergency services, like when I first started, quite naive on how large scale events could happen. Like that. Absolutely. Until you start training and learning more. Yep. And um, it, was, it was great to be able to reach out to Tom for this because it was funny because you know, I was thinking when we first started, when we, we first met, I should say, um, brand new hires in the animal service, mm-hmm. 20 years old. Right. Well, we started living together. Right. Because we needed, you know, didn't want to live with the parents anymore. Time to move out. We're too mm-hmm. broke to get our own place. So we have a picker's cabin on our farm. Mm-hmm. A little three-bedroom, little tiny little cabin, plywood floor, like nothing fancy by any <laughs> yeah. means. That's where we lived for a summer. Mm-hmm. And we brought on another friend, and his girlfriend lived with us as well. And the shenanigans I can only imagine, <laughs> that went yeah. on there. And then from there, we we moved communities. We actually came up to, to here, mm-hmm. and we rented a house, and we were roommates here for about a year or so. Right. And uh, that one, I still remember, We our bedrooms were across from each other, and you know we'd be out partying a little bit too much overindulged the night before yeah and one of us would be on call the next morning pager goes off oh i can't do it man can you go i guess <laughs> so <laughs> we, we'd swap back and forth like that and nice <laughs> yeah all these stories start popping back in my head mm-hmm. now but i feel that probably wouldn't fly today oh absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> i probably shouldn't have phoned then but <laughs> nope but it did yeah many nice. many shenanigans but that's awesome yeah, yeah, it's cool. Cool to see, um, you know, people's career paths and how how things develop. And um, I mean, you're crazy, or you're crazy community minded, obviously, with your uh, current current role here, mm-hmm. which is great for our area. And uh, you know, you can see um, everything that he's kind of, you know, gone gone through in his career. Um, That's right. Through his career, and then now through through this uh, team is it's really really impressive. And. You know, looking, you know, at our small scale departments and our areas, we talk about calling for help early right. and recognizing when to call help. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and the other neat thing about our departments is the, all the different experience, life experience that people bring into our departments. And absolutely. So my life experience, knowing the connections I have made through mm-hmm. my career and friendships, I know Tom and is part of this team. I know what the team is capable of doing. Yep. So if we were ever on an event, I could pass some of that knowledge on, hey, this looks like this type of situation. What do you think to the IC or chief or whoever? Yep. And have those discussions and make those mm-hmm. calls for help. Make, You know, it was neat. So I, I kind of felt like Echo Charles tonight. Um, <laughs> I was that guy that, you know, starts 
off the episode, I hit uh, record, I give the good, uh, you know, hello, good evening, and, like, really sat, sat back and listened, and a lot of things that were going through my mind as I'm just listening to, you know, your guys' stories and listening to Tom's stories, um, is the melting pot of skill sets in your volunteer and paid on call service mm-hmm. really lends to the same idea of what they have going there. So like we are yeah. lucky enough that we have this in a volunteer and paid on call service where like my skill sets can differ from yours, can differ from Scott's, will differ from Rob's and right. we can keep keep on going. So they just have this massive team of many many skill sets so they have taken it that obviously one one step further but i still keep like you know likening that back to um the basics that we all bring in so yeah. you get these massive scale teams that you know they have all all of these like technical rescue um and like technical skills that they all bring into this hundred and whatever person team i mean we are that small scale of that here locally yeah and we don't all you know we obviously don't have all of the certs that go along with that. We have our like redneck certs, like all of our life experience <laughs> yeah. that goes along with it. So um, knowing that, having everybody that can recognize certain, you know, cer- uh, certain dangers, certain issues that are coming up and recognizing, hey, you know, like I know enough to know this isn't going to be good and yeah. recognizing. So going, going back to the story of, you know, the collapse in Kelowna, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one that, you can't recognize it until it happens. That's right. But recognizing that, hey, we have we have a bad situation, and some of this on the rescue side of it is going to be beyond what I can bring. Let's initiate those those calls and that request for extra help. Going back to the floods and things like that, like you see, we we knew that the weather was coming in. We didn't know the severity of it, and then you start to see these forces of nature take take place where flooding starting you are getting a, you know some of the the uh slides happening and knowing hey where where, where this is what this is and what this is going to mean to i mean i don't mean i'm not even sure if people were thinking supply chain at the time they're 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 more thinking about access yeah and what this is going to mean for for rescue knowing like hey i know a little bit about you know not the geography of it but that overall lay of the land, hey, this is going to be bad. Like, we are going to get cut off. We are going to need some extra help. Yeah. That's going to be regular search, search and rescue. No, this is going to be like a step above that. Right. And that's where these guys come in. And it was, yeah, that was an awesome, awesome story. And like, we were all following, you know, like we would follow along daily um, how this was progressing. Um, and it was a lengthy process. It wasn't like, that's right. Like, the Kelowna thing was like their involvement was was fast it was yeah. awesome come in help out do what they can it wasn't super lengthy the agassiz and then abbotsford and beyond i mean that spanned for days to weeks days and to weeks yeah i mean they're, they're still dealing with issues of it today yeah. um you know throughout the uh, province there so yeah really interesting to see um a, a little glimpse into the inside of what of what that uh, team looks like I'm, I'm sure we could go on for 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 hours listening to other you know events other trainings and and how all 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 that looks and we still didn't touch on like his job job no <laughs> i know right so absolutely yeah that's definitely going to be a chat for another day yeah but again it was neat like you mentioned <clears throat> with the teams like you've got uh highly qualified critical 
pa- uh, paramedics, primary mm-hmm. care paramedics, physicians, firefighters, uh, structural specialists, and, you know, and on and on yeah. and on, all part of this one cohesive group, which is mm-hmm. which is awesome. Ab- absolutely, yeah. It's that uh, task force that mm-hmm. you know you you really need on these larger scale events. Um, everybody has their own ex- expertise, and you can pull on that and you know assemble and then deploy. Yeah. And, and and give that support to you know especially i mean it's great in like the big urban areas but out in these smaller rural communities um i mean we we got to be switched on and yeah. you know be trying our best to think ahead and activate that because they're they're not just right down the street mm-hmm. um you know if it's going to be they're they're uh, looking at a six hour uh deployment time that's right um yeah, getting that early, early, you know, and we're we're really good at that here. Um, I, I think we, we we should be proud of how we're not in that mindset of like I don't want to call for help. I think we we do a really good job of recognizing that mm-hmm. quite early. Um, but that's something to have, obviously, in the back back of our minds. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I kind of chuckled when Tom said uh, we we deployed a small team. Out to Kelowna of 20. Of 20, yeah, a small team of 20. <laughs> I think that's over half our department. That's yeah. Our full team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyways, it was it was awesome having them on. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so moving into our shout outs. Yeah. Modus. Yeah, Modus. Um, obviously, the uh, claim to fame and the old snagger tool. Uh, use it, love it. Uh, there's lots of info out on the so- social medias there. Um, we got, uh, we were chatting just last week. We have. A little gift box that came in. Uh, Todd's sporting a pretty sweet Modus hat right you right, right now. Uh, they got their truck spanners. They got their uh, hydrant wrenches. They got their uh, individual IFAC type kits. They've got their uh, soft bags for, for gear. They've got uh, force entry wedges. I mean, there's so many SKUs that they offer now. Um, it's almost getting too long to <laughs> to list everything that they that they bring to the table. But uh, check them out online. They're on all the major social media platforms, obviously. And um, if you like what you see from them, uh, discount code GTFF5 is going to get you 5, 5% off. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, stop the bleed. So, of course, uh, three methods of uh, major bleeding control is uh, direct pressure, uh, wound packing, and tourniquet application. Uh, so go online, check it out at uh, stopthebleed.org. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, being prepared and, and ready for all facets, whether it's just on the fire department or, you know, extracurricular hunting, mm-hmm. dirt biking, you name it, right? Yeah. Have, have a little IFAT kit with you, have it accessible, have your tourniquets accessible, and, um, yeah, go online and, and check it out. And if you want some supplies for that, rescueessentials.com um, makes some, or they supply a whole variety of companies with uh, training aids, packs, you name it. Um, I've got a bunch of our training aids from there. I love them. The wound packing devices, they're they're fantastic. So you can check out rescueessentials.com. And uh, Tanner Olson. Yeah, Tanner Olson, country music out of West Coast Canada. Um, ramp, you know, ramping up for all the live shows that <laughs> we're still not sure are going to be happening quite yet. But uh, yeah, they're on uh, all of your uh, music outlets whatever yeah. you want to call it uh check them out there uh they were coming out to uh play for us at our seminar which is now postponed sadly yet again uh hopefully when we can finally go live with that they'll uh, come out and support us still so that's right uh fingers crossed for that but uh yeah a really good group of guys west 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 canada so check them out Awesome. Then, of course, you have us. So uh, we're on the Facebook, the YouTubes, Instagram, TikTok. Um, yeah, 
search us up, check it out, give us a comment. Um, and yeah, try and reach out to us if there's any other uh, suggestions or anything you have mm-hmm. and spread the word. It just helps us uh, get out in front of more people. Absolutely. Um, do you want to do a shout out? Uh, we are missing Scott and Rob tonight. Um, they are taking some time off <laughs> tonight with the, forced time the off. <laughs> forced, forced time off of the uh, COVID situation. So uh, we're missing them tonight. But Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, anything more to add there, Ash? No, that was all. Thanks a lot. Hope everybody has a great weekend. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, stay safe. Stay DTFF. Bye.